This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the porncast that asks you not to send Bitcoin to Elon Musk and Bill Gates, but to your favorite cam girl. I'm your co-host, Yvette Dontremont. Here's my lovely, fantabulous, and did I mention sexy co-host, Alice Vaughn. Alice, how the fuck are you doing today? See, I'm not sending Bitcoin to scammers, but I I have a very loyal Nigerian prince. <laughs> Is he planning on sending you 50 million to help the war effort in his torn country? I was told that it was a membership to join the Illuminati. Oh, shit. I got it for the Freemasons. Right? Yeah. I mean, I heard they have great snacks. <laughs> I'm personally there for the coffee. I see where my stolen credit card numbers have gone. I've been the scammed that way a few times. We have a wonderful guest today, guys. I, Alice and I, are we are titillated and excited to bring you Kristen Davis. Kristen, I can't wait to ask you so many questions because I feel like you're just a wealth of stories. I'm just ready to dig in because you, I feel like you have the dirt and you know where to... You know where the interesting bodies are buried for amusement and entertainment in this world of fodder and ridiculousness. And that's, that is why we love you. So for our audience who has never met you before, you are, I want to say, famously or infamously known as the Manhattan Madam. I am. It was a moniker given to me um, while I was sitting in Rikers Island, and I was actually sitting in solitary, and someone oh stuffed the newspaper under the door, one of the COs. And because, you know, you can ask for these things. So when you're asking, hey, can I get the newspaper or they take it around to everybody, but you're in solitary so that each person then puts it back out through underneath their door and you get to look at it. And the first couple days, like pieces were cut out of it. And I'm like, why am I missing the front page? Like, what's going on here? And why am I missing this, these three pages? Cause they just don't let you read about yourself. But at some point, maybe three or four days later, one of the officers was really kind to me. And she's like, I'm just going to let you read what they're saying about you. Oh, and Jesus. I was like, holy moly, none of that's true. Who's this person who was my best friend coming forward to talk about me? I don't even know who you are. All this nonsense, oh, but it was man. given to me in, in Rikers Island. And I was like, well, I guess. I guess that's my new nickname. I imagine being in solitary in Rikers is already bad enough. And then to get that piece of Jesus, it's so, I mean, how do, how do you relate to that nickname now? Is it something that you, you shy away from or you, have you kind of accepted it now at this point? You know, I'd like to shy away from it. Okay. Um, and I think enough years have passed, but in all honesty, the media just keeps recycling. They keep recycling the same photo from the book release party Lainey and I did oh, in 2009. It's 11 years old. Like there are plenty of other pictures, but it's the one where I look the worst. Oh, I had a man. few drinks. I'm sweaty. I can relate. That's happened to me. Damn it. I always try choosing also the best photos of people. I don't understand. You know what it is? It's whenever people are trying to portray someone in a negative light, they always choose the worst possible photo. They find the one where your makeup is melted. You're having a bad day. Exactly. You've gained five pounds just the week before. Like it's there's one picture of me from an interview, like the first week that I was a thing. And people who don't like me keep using that picture. And I'm like, I, I feel you so deeply right now. It's painful. Right. You must really hate me. Like I'm in my 40s now and you're using a picture from when I was in my 20s. That's not even close to accurate. That is rough. It's funny because what gets missed from the narrative and all this is that you are highly educated. I went through and uh, saw a few interviews with you. Uh, you got into this field because you were trying to take care of your mom who had post-polio syndrome. Is that accurate or is that a fair way to speak about that? I mean, I think it was twofold. I spent 10, 11 years in upper, well, I started as a trading assistant in finance, and then I worked my way up into vice president of operations. And I was sort of hitting the glass ceiling. It was an industry that was yeah. introduced in finance. So it was something I was sort of accustomed to. So that sort of was the precursor. And then my mom actually has what Lainey has, which is Guillain-Barr syndrome. At the time, we thought it was post-polio syndrome, but since okay. then, she's been diagnosed. And she's like instantly immobile. And there was some fear there. And I wasn't really serious. I just placed an ad on Craigslist, 
Like, how would I find girls? I don't even know how I'm going to do this. Oh, wow. And I was fired the next day. Were the two related, the posting on Craigslist, or did they just happen to coincide? Oh, this was, a, this was great. Um, I walked into the office. They took a picture of me at the front desk, a Polaroid picture, put it on the front of the office. And they're like, we're putting your picture here so you can never enter this office again. And they pulled me right over to a side room and they're like, you're being let go. And I'm like, for what? I'd only been there two months. That's vice president. There were only 10 people in this company. And they're like, well, you used um, the business computer systems for personal use. Everyone on their spare time is shopping. What are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, it's that ad. And it's not this policy that you're mad that I'm breaking. It's what I posted. Because of course, everyone else was breaking it for right. you know, all for these guys are probably things. looking at porn get the hell out of here and i'm like for real like okay then you're still paying me my moving bonus you were supposed to pay me 25 grand after eight weeks i was like on my seventh week <laughs> and i'm like you're still paying me you managed to get that from them yeah i, I got on the um Subway to go back. This was Connecticut and I was living in Manhattan. And I remember sitting there very vividly, sitting there waiting for the train, like, what do I do now? And I looked over the edge and I said, it's sink or swim time. You're either doing this business and you're going to make it go, or you might as well jump off of this ledge because <laughs> I hated finance. I really did. I was so miserable. Oh, man. So I'm curious, where was the jump from to deciding? I obviously, here's a jump of, hey, I'm definitely doing this escort service. I'm going to do it 100%, just focus, you know, make it be the best thing possible. But where did you get the idea? Did you just surf the net and think it was an interesting idea? Did you know people who did it previously? You know what? One day I was sitting in my office. I actually used to have an office in Boston and I was living in Boston. I owned a home and I was miserable there. I had moved there for this job for two years. And I'm like, I think I just need to go back in, to New York. And I'm reading in the newspaper that Jason Itzler had gotten busted for his agency, which was New York Confidential, and how much cash he had. And I was like, what an idiot. Like, how did he get in trouble? And it was Elliot Spitzer, actually, as attorney general who arrested him. Oh, man. That's a fun, complicated story that came right back around. Right, right. So I was like, well, you know, maybe I should try to get myself back to New York and just kind of explore this because I, it's, you know, I mean, I started as, as a trading assistant when I was about 18, 17 even in finance. And my bosses used to use escort agencies, go to, you know, strip clubs. And so it was an industry like at an early age I was introduced to. So I'm like, okay, I know how much money these guys are spending. And they're all fairly nice, decent guys. So that's sort of the whole buildup over my lifetime that led me to that particular place. It's like first see the people who are the clientele and then realize that could be the person providing the, yeah. Well, and my bosses sort of, it was what they did when they made a lot of money, right? So we had, we own this stock at $7. It was um, bought out at 12 and we own a million and a half shares. So now we just made a nice chunk of change. What do we do? Oh, we're going to go celebrate. Kristen, can you find us some women? And I'm like, huh? How would I oh possibly God. find you any women? Like, and they they give me a phone number. This is like, this is the phone number to call and you can go. I mean, this is a long time ago. So the internet had websites, but it was not like you could just go on and book something. So I'm like, okay. So I'm making calls. People are faxing me photos. They're emailing me photos. I mean, it was something that they did every few months. Booking an escort via fax. Right. Damn. That was the days. You know, maybe that's something we should bring back nowadays. No one would suspect it. You cannot cancel someone via fax. That's right. Okay, so you're now in this industry. So how long did you do this escort service for? About five years. Um, it took me about a year and a half to get it to be as profitable as it was. And then I just looked at it like any other business. We had apartments in five major cities, an overseas call center. I had seven different websites from all price points. I mean, it was it was a work of art <laughs> when it was running and it made a, quite a bit of money. How much money would you think that uh, you've made the most uh, gross in one given year? I don't know, maybe 8 million, 10 million. 
And the girls were, were well compensated too, of course. 50-50 split. Everything was a 50-50 split. Nice. I mean, nice. there were a few that ne- renegotiated their terms, but um, most were okay with that. Especially if hypothetically you're doing all the legwork as far as marketing, finding the clients, scheduling the appointments, and if they just have to show up. I mean, 50-50 split is what they do at... Yeah. Um, What's it called? The Bunny Ranch, um, I believe. At the Bunny Ranch, yeah, in Nevada. So that actually sounds fairly okay to me. Sounds like industry standard, I would gather. Well, I think the conditions were, listen, I was very good friends with Dennis Hoff before he died. He was like one of my best friends, but I probably would have never worked for him because <laughs> the way he ran his business oh, was, I-, I loved him, but I even told him, he'd be like, darling. And I'm like, first of all, I never worked. (laughs) But second of all, like you don't have a price floor. That's the problem with it being legal. There's no price minimum. And I don't agree with that. I don't want somebody in there doing things for $60 when I have other girls that have a $500 minimum and that's not fair. And you're getting a certain type of clientele at $60 clearly. So that's not the way I ran my business. You know, we had a thousand dollar minimum, and I really didn't want your thousand dollars. I wanted you to pay fifteen hundred. I mean, I was trying to get the most amount of money. You know, working in finance provided very good negotiation skills, and I I taught all of the women who did phones for me ha- the art of negotiation. Did a lot of them negotiate ahead of time what exactly the rate and what exactly they'd be doing ahead of time, or was um, some of it on spot negotiation that they'd have to do? Both, actually. So in booking the call, there was some level of negotiation, whether or not you're booking for an hour, multi-hours, what you're looking for. Um, so that's like the initial form of negotiation. And a lot of that was psychology-based, like, you know, trying to figure out what it is you're looking for, presenting you with different options, like here's our specials for the day. And it could be the same piece of chicken you're getting, but you might get chicken marsala, chicken piccata, and you know, but actually it's the same girl I'm going to send you. I'm just marketing to whatever your psychology in your head that you actually want is. So I'm just taking the chicken and dressing it up a little different, right? So now once they book the call, you know, we're telling the girl, here's your backstory. Here's your name. Here's where you're going. And this guy seemed, because these weren't easy calls to book. You're talking about a lot of money, right? $1,500 is an easier one. But now when people spent five grand, that's like a cheap car, you know? So there weren't necessarily, they take an hour, maybe multiple days to book. They call here, they call there, we call them back. So once they get in the room, then maybe we're talking to the girl like, hey, we want you to get an overnighter. This guy is here, he's lonely, bring a bottle of wine, spend the first hour drinking the wine. And these are also, you know, beautiful women. Nobody's going to they're walking in the door. If they have a bottle of wine, they're not going to be like, okay, well, you only have that took up, you know, no guy's going to do that with the caliber of woman they're getting and the amount of money they're spending. If they can afford to spend that much, they've got plenty in the bank. So a lot of these calls went from, you know, two hours at 2,400 to overnight for 11,000. So I think the second part of negotiation occurred once because we didn't want the girl negotiating, right? She doesn't know what she's doing. And her job is to just be sweet and charming. So once, you know, the girl gets there, it's her job to get him to want to keep her. And then we start negotiation number two. Interesting. So I know that when we met on Race Wars, you talked a little bit about like expectations of the girls. And I think you mentioned as well that they would always wear condoms, which is great for them. Now, out of curiosity, was there certain things that like, I'm just trying to think. uh, So for example, if someone said, hey, we're looking for someone to do BDSM, you know, who do you have? I would certainly book that kind of call, right? If you call and I'd be like, okay, well, define exactly what you're looking for. And I would get them to try to pinpoint it. And it's sometimes it's a really uncomfortable situation or conversation to have, right? They're like, uh, and I'm like, hey, look, you don't have to tell me, but I don't want to send you someone who's not okay with your request. And then you're unhappy. She's not having any fun. And 
So the more you tell me, the better I'll be able to match you with somebody. So I get all their specifics. And in doing so, I kind of cater to their fantasy and we're building rapport and a bond, right? And then usually what I say is, okay, let me make some calls to my girls and see who's going to be the most energetic about meeting your needs. And then we hang up and I call a few people and I'm like, who wants this? Who can do this? (laughs) And depending on the the level of... dream nature to it. You know, I might not have any takers. I might have plenty of takers. So it's all about like, yeah, matchmaking. I'm just picturing a spreadsheet of like, you know, this one does whipping, this one does pegging. Like I'm amused by this. I did have something sort of like that, but it was more like, here's this girl. She can match to these five photos on this website, these five photos on this website. And because most of my girls were, I mean, I ran a very vanilla agency. So why you would call me is because you're getting really, really stunning girls. And you know, I'm not going to like take your money and send you somebody you're going to be unhappy with. So nine times out of 10, they think it's the same girl in the picture because I have it matched so perfectly that they're like, oh my gosh, she was so amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So then keep their business. I never used real photos though. I didn't advocate for girls to put themselves out there like that. So I literally just paid, either paid models to take photos and then we just blurred out the faces and they were all tastefully, you know, from the back and the cute underwear from the side. And you just never saw anybody's face. (laughs) And at some point, if you had a relationship with me and I knew you as a client, then I would send you girls photos just your email or I text them to you with their faces showing, but I never put them online. I did not think that was comfortable for the women. I didn't want to put anybody in that position. That's awesome. I mean, especially since a lot of people, I'm sure that who do this type of work, you know, do it temporarily. They don't want it necessarily affecting because there's such a stigma against sex work nowadays. They don't want it affecting any other potential career opportunities. So that's really nice that you were able to do that. Out of curiosity, so how long were most girls in, you know, the business for? A couple of months? Did you have any that stayed a few years? I had the same girl that started with me on day one when I was arrested with me. So I started literally with two women and both were still with me. One was only like once in a while. Both were only once in a while because they moved on and they had nice careers, but they still wanted extra money. But those same girls were still with me. And I went through a lot of women because a lot of them were so flaky that, you know, they made $10,000, $20,000 this week. And I could almost, I would tell my management I give this one six weeks before she starts not showing up. Or, you know, TikTok, they'll come back when the money uh, runs out. Yeah, yeah. They would be like, oh, I'm not feeling good. And then, okay, this is before Facebook, right? So you'd be on MySpace. I'd check their MySpace, (laughs) age myself. And um, (laughs) they're like posting photos from the Bahamas. And I'm like, oh, you don't feel well. Okay. So they blow off that week. They blow off the next week. And then, you know, it's like, human nature. You made a lot of money. You want to enjoy it. It's okay. But a lot of the same girls, I mean, at my height, I probably had 120 women. It was pretty intense. And how many clients do you think you've had total? My client list that I still had, which was only for the last two years I was in business was over 10,000. What the fuck? Oh my God. That's impressive. I had all their credit cards too. Bam. (laughs) And the number of these people who would would probably publicly say that sex work is bad and that this should be illegal. I'm just curious what the percentage of that is. A huge percentage. Higher than it should be. Higher than it should be. When people who in their country, this sort of thing is like punishable by stoning or something like that. And they're like the heads of the country. (laughs) I mean, there's some... People's private opinions on, on sex work is very different than their public opinions on them. And it's absurd at this point. It's like, it's 2020. We all know adults have sex. We all know adults sometimes purchase sex. And that's a private decision between two adults. If one wants to sell it and one wants to buy it, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And it's kind of ridiculous that we can't get over this at this point. And the worst is that when people try to cloak concern about uh, sex work, about legitimate sex work as concern for sex trafficking, uh, it's kind of, that makes it a level ickier because it's like, you're trying to say, I'm concerned about a real thing. And you're hurting people who are trying to do legitimate work. 
And you know, what's even worse is that the environment when I was arrested was so much worse, right? We've progressed so much in the last 10 years. So when I was arrested, it was like, you're a sex trafficker. That was the response I got from the public. I mean, people harassing my family. It was like, no. And and it just floored people back then. This is 2008. It floored them that anyone would spend that amount of money. You have to be the hooker with the heart of gold that's desperate for money. And you're doing this for the money because you're doing it because you have drug abuse problems. And I'm like, no, it's the girl on the billboard right there. That girl worked for me willingly. I mean, I never outed anyone, but there were those girls that worked for me and, you know, they charged $4,000 an hour. Come on now. You think that this girl's got any problems? People, you know, my top girl had a $4,000 an hour rate, four hour minimum. So just to see her was $16,000. Man, And if I presented her with a $16,000 offer, she was like, oh, only 16000 I went into the wrong career. Jesus. She goes, you couldn't get me 20 And she had a better deal with me too, right? So her her split with me was 70-30. So oh, man. I was like, are you serious right now? You're going to make $14,000 off of that. Did she have like a strawberry flavored pussy? What was going on here? Whatever she was doing, good for her. Good for her. She was literally the prettiest female I've ever seen up close in my life. And she was educated and she was a a semi-famous actress. And I would tell the clients with conviction, listen, I know this is a lot of money, but you're going to call me and want to send me a present when she leaves because you're going to be so happy. And the people who, you know, I did send them pictures, real pictures of her because it was, I only booked her with people who were regulars and those were people who had spent, you know, very close to that amount before. So it wasn't such a big deal. That's a lot of trust that you have in a client that you're willing to send someone who's, you know, who they're semi-famous and they're, they're in the public eye and they're also doing this job. Uh, You have to have quite the rapport with the client at that point. Oh, well, I mean, those are clients that I had for years. I've, I've met some of them, you know, because some of them are kind of old school where they want me to bring them pictures. I had one guy who used to stay at the Sherry Netherlands in Manhattan, which is on Fifth Avenue. It's like a boutique five star. And every time he came in town, he'd be like, okay, so I'm going to be in town Monday. I would like to see you for tea at the Sherry Netherlands. I love everything about that exchange. (laughs) It was it was so amazing. And he would be like, so before I even get there, I'm going to wire you $50,000 and we can plan out my itinerary. And I'm like, okay. So he would wire the money. Clearly, before I would show up at the Sherry Netherlands, I wanted the wire. The wire comes in. I go to the Sherry Netherlands. I have tea and some little finger sandwiches. I bring him a very nicely made binder with all of his dates And we have a lovely conversation and I leave and about 30 minutes later, his first date would arrive and he had the best week in New York. He usually had to transfer me another 50, 75. Man, Mm, I'm floored that I'm absolutely in the wrong profession. Number one. Uh, Number two, like I could be making way more profit on this form of late stage capitalism. Why am I not doing this? (laughs) Right. Just start lobbying your congressman to legalize or decrim in New York and then Alice, then switch over. Instead of a crayon empire. And it's probably easier now to get clients, right? Because when I started, there weren't a lot of places, right? I had to go find these people. I mean, I put ads on the normal Eros guide or, you know, the city vibes yeah. of the world, but they didn't pull the the level of clientele that I wanted. Back in the day, you also had New York Magazine was taking print ads. So, and that was like $1,000 a week, right? And I got a decent amount of clients from there. Most of my top dollar clients, I either got by finding them or referrals or by New York mag. So I used to go to all the Soho house. I had a a membership at Cipriani downtown. I had a membership at the grand Havana room cost me $30,000 for the year. Oh my gosh. I would just go over there dressed in like a really nice suit or a really nice dress. I would take one or two girls. We would have an amazing dinner. And then I would just give a few discreet cards out. 
I could see you having like a table at One Oak or Gold Bar and, you know, having a girl or two. And that's how you find more clients. I would not be surprised. I did that also. I did all of it. I spent a a lot and I don't, I'm not a very social person. So for me to have to do that, you know, like I was really dedicated to making money. Oh yeah. It's work. Like this is the most humaning I'll do. That is the most humaning I'll do. That is a lot of humaning. So with all this money, okay. Now taxes, IRS, cleaning it. Yeah. Because how do you get away with having that much money? So I thought, if I filed and paid taxes on it and some most, not most, but, you know, let's say 50% of the girls got 1099. You know, if I did things like the right way tax wise, I would save myself additional charges if anything ever happened. But what I didn't understand is like money laundering is literally like taking any form of payment for something that's illegal. It's so broad oh, that- Jesus. Even if, let's say, 80% of my calls were not sex-related, it doesn't matter. It like literally doesn't matter because a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were cocaine calls, people partying. Those were the big, big money calls. But yeah, so I still, I still got a money laundering charge. And the reason they do that and they have that statute so broad is because they want your money. That's the whole point. You know, the government is a business like anything else. And to finance investigations, they must take money from people who have it. Yeah, and civil forfeiture is bullshit. It is. Yeah. And they kept me in solitary in Rikers on a multi-million dollar bill, knowing I couldn't make that bail because you've frozen all of my assets and you won't let me use it for bail. So we're going to keep you here on this bail until you agree to A, bring in your offshore money that we know is out there, and then B, sign, uh, negotiate with us to sign over your assets. So why did they put you in solitary? Yeah, that, that makes very little sense, other than the fact that cops are dicks. Right. I think it was because of the association with Spitzer. It was just cruel punishment. I think it was to scare me. They wanted me to keep my mouth shut, and they wanted me to sign over my money, both of which things I did. Jesus. Now, you said that Elliot Spitzer, so you mentioned that he was a client of yours, or at least you tried having him not be a client because he was abusive towards the women. Yes. Elliot Spitzer, the steamroller. Oh, geez. You know, even before, like, honestly, on day one of opening my agency, I hired this phone booker. Her name is Winnie. I have no problem outing her because she stole a few hundred thousand dollars from me. Oh, my God. She's also Chloe Sevigny's best friend. Oh, this is more tea than I signed up for today. I'm I'm feeling it. Keep spilling. Keep spilling. Yeah. So so when she actually robbed me of this two hundred plus thousand dollars, I hired a private investigatory firm to figure out how much money she stole. She was running her own credit card, stealing my calls, her own set of girls. So they actually did a like an accounting of all the phone calls in and out of my VoIP system. Mm-hmm. And they brought me a list of phone numbers and they're like, hey, do you have any idea why Chloe Sevigny called you like 3,000 times on your business line? What? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, did she work for me? And I didn't know it. That's like the plot twist <laughs> I did not see coming today at all. Yeah, because I hate this girl. Um, oh she stole a lot of money from me. It was a very bad situation. I took my phones back kamikaze style. I just went online because it was an online system, switched them over to my phone and like deaded her. And then I sent the thugs to her house to ask her questions, to scare her, like, where's my money? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was um, it was not a pretty. And I think I think she also probably was testified against me at my secret grand jury indictment. Mm. I must have missed somewhere in there. Was she involved in the booking of Elliot or? Right. So when I first opened, she was my first uh, employee and only phone person. And she told me she came from another agency. She said, listen, so the attorney general is a big client of all of these agencies. He'll make his way around because he finds everybody because he just can't stay with one company for long because he has such an appetite for women and because he's also a little bit volatile. So he's hard to supply girls for. Yikes. So at some point, maybe three or four months after we opened, he found us. Now, I didn't know who he was. You know, I was like only here a few months from Boston. 
And I lived in the Corinthian building, which is 38th and 1st, and his father was the developer of that building. So we used my apartment because I had been fired. I didn't have a location at that point in time. It was like kamikaze reopening. So he came to see one of the girls and she was running late and I met him at the apartment waiting for her. And he was like, oh, you know, I didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize him. And he said, oh, you know, my father developed this building. We had a little chat and that was that. And then afterwards I told the phone booker because I was literally waiting at the coffee shop like a couple blocks away, like, hey, when can I go back inside? I told her, I said, this guy said his father developed the building and she looked it up and she's like, oh, so he found us already. And she sent me a link and I was like, oh yeah, that's him. Cool. Next. He wasn't like one of our super uber big spenders and he was more trouble than he was worth. Uh. So, and you mentioned that he tried rebooking with different aliases. He did. He had, in my computerized software system, he had numerous names, many of which were calling from payphones. We would always catch him because the girls would recognize him. He'd call, he'd book under a different name. I'd say, okay, go see Samantha. And Samantha would be like, that's that dude that I saw like two months ago that I didn't like, that I asked you not to book me with again. And I'm like, crap. So we would go through our records and find him. He has a really recognizable voice, too. I don't know how he thought he'd get away with that. Like, his voice is instantly like that's. I remember when he was on CNN back in the day. It's like very low, kind of crackly. How did he think he was going to get away with that for so long? Well, I think that's why he partly why he called um, from payphones sometimes. You know, there was a gritty connection back when there were payphones, you know, and I just had ongoing lists. Every time he would use his cell phone, we would catch him and we'd be like, hey, look, I mean, I didn't blacklist him then. It was just, there was a whole list of women that wouldn't see him. You know, I've got Samantha doesn't want to see him again. Erica doesn't want to see him again. Erica said X, X, and X. And I'm like, okay, I don't have anyone for you today because, and I would have this uncomfortable conversation with him. Like, listen, this is what the girls are saying. I'm going to give you a warning. Okay, well, a narcissist doesn't like to be told what to do. So then that's... I'm sorry to interrupt. Just how yeah. uncommon was a situation with a client that you had to tell them, nobody wants to take your money? He's the only one. Oh, my God. What? In all the years you were doing this, he's the only one it was this bad with? Yep. Jesus. I had two others that were difficult, but not like him. Not where girls were like, oh, I never want to see him again. Like, ever. I, I just... Oh my God. Would have a few difficult ones where they were like, okay, we have to be prepared for this. It's like, I'm sure there were some that just weren't a girl's type, wasn't a good match, but this was. No, you know what? Because we screened them so thoroughly that if you had an attitude with us, you weren't getting an appointment. This was a pro female agency. And I wanted your attitude to be like, I'm lucky to get this appointment. If you were rude and I had so much business that I could afford to turn you down. So if you called up with an attitude, you're like, yeah, what a, and I'm like, yeah, I don't want your business. Next. I have people calling me back 50 times, like begging me for appointments. How come you won't give me an appointment? And I'm like, because you sound like a jerk. And I don't want to send my girls to a jerk because guess what? My girls are my friends. They're people I've handpicked. I've met with personally. I'm friends with a lot of them. I'm not putting them in the weird situation. Sorry. That and anyone who calls 50 times for something, you know that person's going to be trouble after the appointment. We've all had that guy who won't fucking stop calling. I did it once, and the girl ended up on the street in her bra and underwear, so I never oh did it Oh, my God. They got into an argument, and he literally threw her clothes out the window in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, the only time I ever sent anyone to Brooklyn. He begged, please, I'll pay you triple. I'll pay you triple. And I'm like, we don't go outside Manhattan. We really don't. We don't need to. I mean, it should have been standard already paying triple because they're leaving Manhattan. I live in Manhattan. I am not willing to go to Brooklyn. I'm sorry. If you are exactly. from Brooklyn and you are offended by that, I don't care. She'll come visit <laughs> me in LA before she'll go to Brooklyn. Me too. <laughs> yes. Me too. As soon as shit is less fucking bananas, you guys are both welcome to come and have a snuggle and share my drugs. Just come out anytime you can. <laughs> okay. 
So I'm curious. So aside from stories like a girl escaping in her underwear from Brooklyn, because I mean, I actually, that sounds like most stories from Brooklyn (laughs) now that I say that out loud. It probably is. Look, the two times I was in Brooklyn happened to me three times. What are some of the craziest situations you feel like you've been in because of this industry? Prison, jail, Rikers Island is the worst, but... Say jail never happened. Let's talk about the ones you would tell over drinks to people who, yeah. like You know, I think a couple times I went, like I used to send girls on traveling missions, right? So if I had a girl, she's maxed out in New York. She's like, I need money. I need money. What can you do for me? And I'm like, well, I could send you on tour, but really most of them don't want to go by themselves. So if they didn't have anybody else to go with them, sometimes I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to send you to like LA for a week, Vegas for a week. So those were sort of fun and crazy experiences going on traveling with these women who end up being like train wrecks and then trying to keep track of them and actually like make them understand, hey, we're supposed to be here to make money, not go party and meet people. One girl literally went out all night in LA. We were staying at, I think it was maybe like the Montrose or something like that. She went out and like five o'clock in the morning, I'm like, um, where is she at? Where? I wonder if she's come. Is she dead? And she came back. She ends up like throwing up all over the place. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess today is shot. So there were like many, many nightmare girl stories. One in the very beginning when we were using our apartment, my apartment, I was downstairs. It was about nine o'clock at night. And I had two girls in there because I had built a wall, a temporary wall in New York. So I had like a two bedroom. So I had two girls in there. They both had a call. And I'm like sitting downstairs waiting for it to be over. It's late. It's dark. It's starting to get cold because it's like October. And I'm like, so I'm calling my phone person. Can I go back up yet? Can I go back up? None of us can reach them. And I'm like, great. So now I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, we've only been in business like two and a half months. We're already busted. What the hell? I'm sitting on a park bench in front of my building. Help God, please let my cats be okay. Like, you know, so I'm just sitting down there. Finally, I'm like calling their phones and I'm like, I'm just going up. It's like an hour and 40 minutes past the call time. So I'm like, okay, they can't be in there anymore. I don't know what just happened, but I'm just going to suck it up and put my big girl pants on and go up there. So I'm calling this one girl like 50 times. And finally she picks up and I'm like, yo, I'm on my way right now. I'm in the elevator. I get up to the 28th floor where I was. I come off the elevator and I'm three doors, you know, in, I'm still down the hall, my apartment. And all of a sudden she comes running out of my apartment in a ball gown and takes a quick right down the staircase. We're 20 floor floors up. <laughs> and I'm standing there like, and off she, she had no shoes on. It's October. She had her shoes in her hand. And I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. So I get inside my apartment. (laughs) My apartment is trashed. This just went from funny to terrifying. Even back then, I always did like low carb, right? So I had all these chicken breasts and things in the refrigerator. There was all like my meat products with bites taken out of them on the floor. There were boxes of cereal. Just, I mean, my kitchen was ransacked and I'm like, I don't understand how, how could anybody do this in for an hour and a half? So I go into the bedroom, my perfume bottles are broken. The dresser drawers are my clothes are, and I'm like, I have no idea what just happened in my apartment. There's three empty bottles of wine. So I'm looking through the apartment in the converted room. Someone left their backpack. Uh-huh. So I opened the backpack and there's her wallet with her ID, her credit cards. And I'm like, oh, shame on you, girlfriend. Never leave stuff where I can track you down. So I call, I'm calling her, calling her, calling her. She's still not picking up. I call, first of all, they owe me a thousand dollars. Where's my money? You fucking trashed my house. Where's my money? So I'm calling. Finally, I leave a voicemail and I'm like, hey, I don't know what happened here, but I certainly want to know what happened here. And I've got your ID. I've got your credit cards. I know who you are because I never asked anybody, really. I didn't, wasn't keeping track of you, especially then in the very beginning, beginning. I'm like, 
have your parents' information because you have their business card in your wallet. So you have five minutes to get back to my apartment with my money or I'm calling your parents. She was only about 22. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh man. (laughs) Don't need to call someone's parents. So the next thing you know, the doorman is like, Miss Davis, I have so-and-so downstairs for you. And I'm like, send her. (gasps) Oh, she shit. came back upstairs. She had her shoes on. She's still in the same ball gown. Like, where did that come from? And <laughs> she comes running off the elevator. I didn't even let her come into my house. I met her at the elevator. And she's got $20 bills in little tiny balls, balled up. And she has like a small handful of them. There's probably 140 bucks. And she's like, I don't know. I just freaked out. And she's crying. And you can't make any sense of what she's saying. She's like a hundred percent not coherent. And I'm like, where's my money? Where's my money? What happened here? And she's not telling me, she's repeating the same two sentences over and over and over. And I'm like, I threw her backpack. I grabbed the money out of her hand. And I was like, don't ever contact me again. What the hell And I I left. And you know, this idiot still texted me like two months later. I'm so broke. I'm so sorry what I did to you. What in God's name went wrong? And like, it sounds like she had a mental breakdown or was like, hey, PCP sounds fun. Or but how does, <laughs> right. how does like just the bite out of all the, chi- the one bite. I know. I was like, all my food is trash. What the hell? Like, why not eat all the bites out of one thing of chicken instead of one bite out of all of the chicken? How, what goes? Was it at least cooked? Multiple chicken breasts on the floor with singular bites taken out of them. One Cooked bite. or raw? Cooked. <laughs> I wish raw. Sorry, just wanted to check. That would have been more of a sign of PCP if it was raw. Oh, but do you know how many people tried to screw me over for money? I had one client. This is a good story. It's quick. One client who used to charge on his Amex, right? He had his father's company that he was CEO of vice president or whatever he was that he used to charge on the black card. And then one day I'm in Texas going to visit one of my friends. I get an alert on my bank account. Like, Hey, you you just had a debit of like $39,000. And I'm like (laughs) $39,000. So I stopped my whole trip. I call the bank. He charged back on a month. This is how much money he spent in a month. Right? So he spent 39,000 in a month. Oh my God. It's like, sorry, we had a chargeback for all these charges on this credit card. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. So I call him and I'm like, so, hey, $39,000. I've already paid these girls, first of all. So I'm already out like nineteen five. What are you going to do about that? And he's like, I'm sorry, my my dad, um, you know, he went through the credit card accounts and he canceled a bunch of our cards and he charged back. Well, that's great. How would your dad feel about where these charges are from? And because I want my money. And he's like, okay, let me work on this. I'm going to get another credit card. And I'm like, oh, no, no credit card from you, buddy. Like, and so we're going back and forth. I'm in Texas. I had like four days there. He's given me the runaround the entire time. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I was like, man, don't make me get ugly. Come on now. This is a lot of money. So I got back to New York. I call in and I'm like, hey, we need to set up a date to settle this up. There's no more excuses. And he was like, okay, so we're going to meet here, but let me just call you right back. And he didn't call me back. So I called my one of my peoples and I made them just go get a, a rental car, like an all black sedan. And they went over to his house and they parked out in front of his house. <laughs> and I called him up again and I'm like, Hey, Chris, you didn't call me. I need my money. You can't dodge me. I said, tell your wife to go look out her window. <laughs> you see that black car? That's, those are my people. Oh my God. And he's like, uh, and I said, listen, he's going to sit there until you pay me. He only has about three hours. So you have three hours with which to meet me and pay me, or he's going to go talk to your wife and ask her if she has some money. And he's like, literally call me back 10 minutes later. I'm going to the bank to get you a cashier's check. (laughs) (laughs) He met me on the street corner in Manhattan in the rain. 
I literally just took, um, this is before Ubers. So it was in a, a, another sedan, a car service. And I just got in the car service, pulled up. He put the check in the window. I took my check and that was that. <laughs> Wonderful visual to the end of the story. I have to ask, and I know this has absolutely nothing in relation to your business, but you obviously were around a ton of, you know, people with money and finance, influential people, people who, you know, bought your services that, you know, are in higher up positions. The whole Jeffrey Epstein, Giselle Maxwell thing, any tea there and any crossover and anything you're like, yeah, I smelled that from fucking miles away. You know, I never even heard of them. So before back in the day, I mean, I didn't, if anyone ever called, I had one client who used to call and be like, what's the youngest girl you can send me? Uh, And I'm like, 21. Gross. And I'm like, because I didn't even work with women unless they were, I wanted them at least 24. Like, I want you to have a little bit of life experience under your belt so you know what you're doing. And so I I really didn't tolerate that kind of stuff. Good. Wonderful. It's it's pretty disgusting though. One of my clients after my arrest, maybe a year and a half, um, you can Google him. It's pretty interesting. His name is Joe Brooks. He wrote the song, You Light Up My Life. Him and his son were arrested. He was a very good client and one of my only other difficult clients other than Elliot Spitzer. They got arrested for kidnapping, raping, dozens of women off of Craigslist. So after I went out of business, they then went over to sort of Craigslist and they had a assistant that was helping them procure these women. He would tell them he's going to get them a Broadway deal or whatever, and then rape them. And they were all, a oh lot of them were young. Well, that's horrible. Oh my God. He killed himself in prison. I think they both killed himself. Father and son killed themselves in prison. Jesus. Jesus. So you were in jail, and it sounds like you had a horrible time. As sounds typical for prison. Yeah, generally. And uh, Rikers is definitely not a great place. What is it like that most people would know, you know, as most average laymen have not been to jail? Everybody, I feel like, has an idea of jail from either their imagination, their TV, movies, or Orange is a New Black which does fall under those two categories. I think, especially in this climate with COVID, what people have to understand, I know certain people are being released from prison because of medical concerns. And I think something that I always bring up to people in this current climate is there's no medical care in prison. There's no doctor. There's no nurse. If you get sick, you sit there and suffer. There's no medicine. You can't just walk up to somebody and be like, hey, I'm sick. Could I get some flu medicine? you're screwed. So if you want to get to see a doctor, let's say in federal prison where I spent a year and a half, you put your name on a list. Then they send you through the daily communication. It's called a call sheet. Through the call sheet, it might take them two weeks before you get on the processed. And then it's going to say, hey, you have an appointment August 23rd. And that's when you get your appointment. So it could be right now, July and your appointment is six weeks later. That's And you could have a crisis. Uh, like you might even, I had one friend who broke their leg. It took them three months to oh get God. to the hospital to have it reset. It had to be rebroken Jesus. because that's how quick the federal government works. So there's no medical care. It's utterly inhumane to put somebody in there right now with what we're dealing with. Oh, yeah. You have a a good friend, Roger Stone, who uh, recently was uh, his sentence was commuted. And like as much as uh, as my politics don't align with Rogers, I'm fine with anybody uh, over the age of 65 who is a nonviolent offender not going right now, because the fewer people we can have not getting sick with this awful disease, uh, the better uh, in my point of view. So the fact that uh, like knowing that you had that experience of seeing firsthand how bad the medical system was and then seeing a friend of yours uh, potentially going to jail uh, when he's in an at-risk age group. I can see how that rattled you quite a bit. Well, and I think people don't understand prison is a form of slavery, right? Per our constitution, it's the only acceptable form of slavery. So you literally have no control of making decisions for your body. So let's say this is one of my favorite examples. Let's say you have a cavity in your tooth. They're going to send you to the prison dentist, who's not even a real dentist, right? This one's like medic quack, not even licensed. And they're going to tell you, listen, we don't fill cavities. You're going to have to pull that tooth. 
And so the next thing you know, and maybe you're not smart enough, or you have such a long amount of time left to do, you can't just be like, oh, I can wait till next year when I get out. Maybe you got 10 years, right? So guess what? You're coming out of prison. I can't tell you how many women I saw this happen to that broke my heart with no teeth. And they're going to send you with some dentures home and you're 30 years old and you have had all of your teeth pulled rather than proper dental care. One, because it's cheaper for the government to pull your tooth than it is to fill it. So you have to think about that. It's cheaper for them to let you go to stage three or four cancer than it is to take you out every day for treatment. It's a cost life perspective that they're weighing. It's very, very inhumane. And I think also someone just asked me what my view was on could people in jail, should they vote, have the right to vote, right? Because I think California is doing that right now, weighing out whether or not we allow people in jail to vote. And my thought on that is no. First, you lose your right when you commit a crime, right? We're in prison for a reason. We shouldn't be able to vote. We need to pay our dues before we can be able to vote. However, also important to note is you're a slave in prison. So you don't have access to the TV, to the news, to a newspaper. You don't know who to vote for. So you're talking about people who have never been political in their life and you're asking them to vote. So they don't have any clue. But if you give them the right to vote, they're still property of the government. They are the government's property. So what happens in prison is they tell you, hey, look, you have to vote and they're going to give you a ballot and force you to vote. And they're going to tell you who to vote for. So you don't get to just opt out of a service or anything they tell you to do because you're their property. If they tell you to do something, you do it. Or there's you're in the hole. You're this or that. I can't tell you how many things I was forced to go to, to sign, to do in prison because that's prison policy. If they have an event and they want to take a survey, you have to fill it out. They're going to tell you what to write. So when they're talking about giving people in jail the right to vote, but we don't have any rights. So you're telling us that the master is basically going to determine who the slave votes for, because that's how it is. I think that uh, a lot of people are still fighting for the rights for people to get the right to vote back after they leave prison. So, I mean, I understand. I I actually hadn't considered that perspective that people in jail are at that point where, you know, they don't feel like they have freedom because they have uh, people looking over their shoulder. They don't have the freedom to really vote as they would so choose. No, they don't. You don't have choices in prison. You can't just say... Uh, I don't want to go to the prison dentist. I don't want to go to this doctor. They schedule it for you. You cannot, they are the boss of you, your body, every choice. You don't have any choices. So it's not even about whether or not you can opt out. Like you don't have the choice to opt out. One time I was like, Hey, they're like, Hey, you have court. I'm like, no, I don't have court. I don't have court. My attorney's on vacation. I know this. I fought it. I was so defiant because I was like so broken down. I sat there, I'm not going. That trip is awful. I'm handcuffed to another person who hates me. Like, I'm not going. They came around and threatened to taser me. Jesus. They sat down in my cell and they're like, listen, Davis, I'm going to have to taser you if you don't go. So what do you think I did? I went. Like, I didn't have a choice. I don't want to be tasered. That's the environment you're in. You can't make a simple decision for yourself. Let me guess. The easiest summary is however bad you think it is, it's worse in ways that you never thought of. Exactly. I'm sorry you went through that because I I genuinely don't think that people who've been through, who have committed uh, nonviolent offenses should ever be in jail for any extended period of time, like especially one that's a a moral judgment like sex work. Um, The fact that you were in a federal penitentiary for a year and a half for something that was consensual work between adults is is absurd. So thank you. We have our disagreements, but I think what you went through is just wrong morally. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of women in prison who are there for marijuana crimes, mandatory minimum, a 10 year minimum. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many states is it legal? But federally, it's still illegal. And it terrifies me because my husband works in the industry. And I go, you know, one day they could decide we're going to start doing raids again. And it's atrocious that they can do things that are, they can take away your freedom for things that seem like they there's no good reason why these should be crimes. They're victimless entirely. Right. And if you're in federal prison, they're going to send you to drug program for marijuana. 
What is that even like, dare for adults? As I sit here vaping it, <laughs> they're going to send you to the, <laughs> the the federal prison's drug pro- program is called RDAP. It's a, a 10-month program that gets you time off, the only the only program that gets you time off. And if you have, if you've admitted to smoking pot to the government, you're going in a drug program. I admitted to smoking pot to the government and they gave me a security clearance. <laughs> you're you have some sort of charm then. oh no they uh when i i'd already gotten a uh, i'd gotten my interim clearance and i'd gotten a job working as an explosives analyst uh for homeland security uh my background as a chemist before i was an online talking head i was a chemist and responsible and shit like that but uh they asked have you the first question on the security clearance forms is uh are you or have you ever been a member of a group planning to overthrow the government of the united states i'm like man you got me I'm just going to admit it right now. They actually still have that on immigration forms. Like when my friend Faisal came from Iraq, they asked like one of the questions was, are you a communist? Wow. Interesting question. Asking someone if they're a part of any political party is wrong, even if it's one that I vehemently disagree with before you come into the U.S. But yeah, that's just the fact that they ask, are you planning on overthrowing the U.S.? I'm like, this is how you're going to get people. Really? I really want to know, though, who was like, mm, yeah, right. honesty is the best policy. Yes. Yeah. How many yeses do they get? For pot, I lied a little bit and said, yeah, you know, once I tried it and once I accidentally ate a brownie. You accidentally inhaled. Yeah. it's I accidentally did it a lot more, too. <laughs> but Was it Obama that said he accidentally inhaled? Who was that? It was Clinton. 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 He accidentally did a lot of things. Or no, he said he he didn't say he accidentally inhaled. He said he didn't inhale. Like I I think Obama was he was a little more honest about it. He said I inhaled. That was the point. So it's like like that it was the I, point. Yeah, exactly. It's like I've I've continued to inhale and I liked it. Last week was my birthday and I did mushrooms. It was a good time. That's right. Your birthday is a day after mine. A day before. Your July seventh or yeah. Seven, yep. seven. It's happy, happy birthday. How was your 29th happy birthday again? Happy birthday to you. It was amazing. It was amazing. As much as it can be amazing with everything closed. We accidentally turned mine into two days of festivities. The first day I did DMT. The second day I did mushrooms. I don't even know what DMT is. You're going to have to educate me. It's a hallucinogen. It lasts uh, less than 10 minutes. And it's just kind of neat to see the edges of reality blur a little bit. So is it come in liquid form? It's a powder and you smoke it in a, well, kind of a crack pipe. Um, but it's my, you know, nice. my my husband works in it. You know, he's the chief scientist at a cannabis uh, company. And so sometimes other drugs come our way. And so there was enough, there were enough doses of DMT for me, my husband, and a few of our housemates to try it out. Super it was, fun. It was a wonderful bonding experience. And then the next day, my husband and I did mushrooms together. And again, wonderful bonding experience. Great way to kick a lot of shit out of my brain. Like it's, there was one really uh, screwed up experience that if like I, I had not done mushrooms before, I like, I didn't know if like I was going to start seeing dragons or whatnot, but the right. one- I don't even under- know what the high is like. Oh yeah. It's like you get a body high. Like at one point I got, I became very aware all of a sudden- of limbs and that I had them. Like that was, that was odd. Uh, I, I said to my cat, girl, you have four of these and you walk on them. You're very clever. I wasn't having like, you know, I was having some hallucinations, like the edges of reality blur a little bit, but then I have a role-playing group because I'm a nerd. Uh, you know, we get together and we have little, you know, we have our little adventures on Thursday nights and like Dungeons was, and Dragons. Yeah. It's a, it's a different uh, game, but it's, it's called monster of the week and it's kind of like D and D, but like I was definitely mm, still tripping and could not go. So I'm like, I'm going to send them a video as my character, uh, whose name is Masha, is the physical embodiment of spirit of Russia. And I'm like, I'm going to send them a video as Masha. And I start recording it and I'm watching my face and it looks like I have a Salvador Dali filter on my face because it kept twisting and pulling it. And I'm like, oh my God, do I have a filter on this? So I tried recording it on another program. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm on drugs, aren't I? That's so awesome. But yeah, that was, uh, mushrooms were wonderful. And uh, I, I, it's don't do drugs, kids. That's the message from this. But if you do, take the fun ones. Yes, that's right. Don't do ones that can kill you or addict you in one dose. That is my uh, advice. You know, frankly, that's where I feel like this country is also has gotten it all wrong. I mean, frankly, we need to be more like Amsterdam where, you know what? 
let's legalize it if people want to do. And this is why Amsterdam doesn't have like a heroin epidemic. They're like, hey, for, for the few people who want to do heroin, we have clinics, they have needles, and there's very, very few addicts. And very few overdoses too, because they're like, we have a place to make sure this doesn't go down unsafely. That's true. They're pleasant people. They're very lovely. I spent some time over there. Very tall and handsome and pretty people. Right? Everybody's lovely over there. I'm like, why am I like the midget over here? Like, I was in Amsterdam the other year and it was, I was there with my boyfriend and we were looking around and everybody was attractive. And he was like, did you see that woman? I'm like, yeah. Did you see that man? It's ridiculous. Everybody. They're all tall. All tall and gorgeous. And pretty. Yeah. One of few places in the world where I feel not short, but average heighted. And everybody's on a bike. Did you see the bike garage? There's like 500 bikes in its own garage. And I'm like, wow, that's impressive. Ah, incredible. And also you have an off chance of running into Seth Meyers. What? I don't know if he still does, but he, at, at a, a couple of years ago, uh, lived there for a few months a year. Interesting. Well, at the moment, I uh, kind of hate Seth Meyers' wife. Uh, she can go fuck herself. Um, so That's she's random. basically... Well, it's not that random because she's basically, um, so his wife is a lawyer who is advocating to specifically bring in the Nordic model into uh, oh. New York. So basically criminalizing sex work uh, for all the Johns that buy it, but decriminalizing it for the workers, which in every single country that has put in the Nordic model, it's been horrible. It's been even worse than it being completely illegal. Why don't they ever listen to sex workers about this, though? Because then they'd have to listen to sex workers. Because it's not about the sex workers. They don't want to admit they exist. They want to get a cookie for looking like they did the good thing. You know, I ran for governor in 2010 and Roger Stone and I met, right? So we met in actually in 2008. We were planning that run for for two years. And we pulled, we took a poll. We spent 25 grand on polling for which words we could run on. That was some of our questions. And we definitely couldn't legalize prostitution. It had to be decriminalized. Right. They were like the like the the percentage of support for legalized was like three and the percentage for decriminalized was like 60 percent. So we changed all of our verbiage. We changed everything. It was optics or everything, man. Huh. And because because they just don't want it to be legal to them. They think, oh, she's going to be on the street corner. It's going to be okay. And we're, our kids are going to see that. And it's all dirty and it's all drugs and it's this and that. And they just don't understand and they don't want to understand. Which is also kind of funny because most sex workers also don't want it legalized. They want it decriminalized, but for different, completely different reasons, because they actually understand how the system works versus the average person where it's legal just sounds bad. Right. And listen, like I said, with Dennis Hoff, you know, where it is legal in Nevada, it hasn't done those girls many favors, you know, it's like you have to go in there, get tested, be trapped inside this house until, you know, you're ready to leave. You sign contracts that trap you to these places. And then you try to leave a week early and they're like, oh, you got to pay us $1,500 for breaking your contract. And I don't fully advocate for that either. You know, I just think if a person wants to do it, let them do it. No, no legal repercussions for them. They should be able to run it like I do, running my webcamming on on teaching people about science. Just be able to have people pay them and transfer that service as they see fit. I, I see no issue with it. It's like as long as yeah, as long either. as everyone's over the age of eighteen. And I feel like there's really no place left to market anymore nowadays. I mean, Eros okay. Guide, but Eros Guide was busted. So anybody that's trusting Eros Guide, I know they're probably cooperating. So your information is not safe. So it's kind of like, you know, I have, fr- I have, I have girls that, um, you know, still work all these years later. They're, you know, probably in their late thirties now, forties. Does it feel, still feel safe to advertise online after SESTA FOSTA or what's the environment like that? Like now? I don't think it is safe. You know, I, I mm. think, um, I think there are some of the remaining old school sites like an Eros guide that are still operating, but they were all rated, you know, a year or two ago. So I think it's like, well, if somebody's rated and their site is still up, it's because they're cooperating. Like that doesn't happen. You don't get rated and then just be like, oh, hey, we're still in business. 
So I think people who are still working just need to be very safe with, you know, their information. I know uh, because of SESTA-FOSTA, City X Guide, which kind of popped up at post uh, back page, they recently were pulled. They right. were actually the first website that was pulled specifically because of SESTA-FOSTA. But Kristen, I'm curious. So, you know, you have done many a things. What are you up to nowadays and what's next? Well, I have spent the last decade plus working for Roger Stone. When we met, I was the celebrity and nobody knew who he was. And I went to prison and then I came out and Roger Stone got a fairly big star. And then the Mueller investigation happened and then it just kept him in the news nonstop, also bankrupted him, dragged me into that witch hunt. So I had to testify in front of the special counsel grand jury, which was a whole other ordeal and super scary and awful and a very long conversation. But um, I got dragged into that. And then he was officially arrested in 2019. And I have spent the last year and a half raising money for him. He happens to be um, one of my closest friends and my son's godfather. So I moved from Manhattan to Florida to be there for him and his family and get him through this. And then by the grace of God, he was sentence was commuted and I'm still working for him. So I think from here on out, you know, I'm actually a, a, a master's student in divinity. Yeah. You're like, that's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. So I'm thinking about doing some sort of like outreach ministry that type oh, of thing. That's interesting. No, I'm, I'm happy for you. It sounds like you found something for you. Yeah. You know, I've always been, um, I was raised a, a very conservative Baptist by a conservative Baptist mother. So I've always had um, a close relationship with God, my God. I think now is sort of a climate where I see all these people like looking for hope and I just kind of want to be involved in something positive. Politics is a very negative environment, cutthroat. I mean, sex work is like two times more honest. You know, politics is like the second oldest profession and it's by far not anywhere near as honest of a transaction <laughs> as an escort business. I think I'm just trying to find like some grounding with my life and that's how I find it. Nice. Well, uh, we wish you all the best with that. And uh, I guess, uh, so... We have some patrons to thank, as usual, and uh, our patrons, by the way, get to hear more about Yvette being on drugs. Uh, so <laughs> hop on over, patreon.com slash two girls on mic. So this week, we want to thank Brian Gowdy, Holly Scheich, Wendy Cornwall, Bethany Nicole, Mark Romer, Joshua Rice, Robert Hetherington, Rich Ryan Shamley, Bob Cole, Eris Knight, Dionysus, Haxor, Shane Wright, John Wingle, Rowdy, Chris Garfalo, Neil Simpson, Carl, Jeff Peterson, Howard Lee, B.N., Mr. Dinks, David Bulla, Kyle Washington, Falco Hyphing, Mike Sorbetsko, Rich Harrell, and many, many others. Again, patreon.com slash two girls on Mike or just two girls on Mike.com. And if you can't support the show with a buck or five bucks to listen to our back catalog of extra episodes, uh, you could just leave us a comment review on however you're listening to this podcast, as well as hit the subscribe button and tell all your friends. But Kristen, where can our listeners find more of you? You can find me at theconservativemadam.com and um, all social networks under Manhattan Madam. Nice. And Yvette, where can our listeners find you? You can find me at the Cybabe on Twitter and Instagram and over at Facebook.com slash Cybabe, where I am doing my usual weekly Facebook live streams to, to keep y'all informed and up to date on exactly how terrified you have to be. You don't have to be too terrified, only moderately. Alice, where can our listeners find you? Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Rational Blonde. You can find the show at all places at TGOM Podcast, but of course, twogirlsonmike.com. And you will see us here again next week on Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>